Good morning. And on behalf of Wes and Dave, we, we want to thank you just for, uh, well, your appreciation. It, while it's uncomfortable, it does mean a lot. And so we do want to thank you all for, for that. Uh, let's pray for a moment once again. Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us as your people. That you would open our hearts to hear your word, to receive your word, to act upon your word, to be comforted by your word, to be challenged by your word. That all that you desire to do this evening in us, that you would do. So Lord, bless the proclamation of your word. Let it move forward with might and power. Glorify yourself. Glorify the name of the Son and of the Spirit and of your own name, O Father that you would be all in all in this place. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Promise, large promise, is the, the soul of every advertisement. So writes the English author and poet Samuel Johnson in the 18th century, that in every advertisement that we see, there's, there's an implicit or sometimes an explicit promise. You get this, and you will what? You will receive happiness, joy, comfort, satisfaction. You vote for this politician, you receive change, or perhaps you, you're on the vanguard of holding off the, the wicked opponent. With every advertisement, well, we receive a promise. And in every promise, well, very often, it doesn't live up to our expectations. It fails to meet what they promise. Right? Diet Coke does not taste like regular Coke. Right? Nobody's that happy eating McDonald's. The bulletin that says that a, a chili cook-off is going to begin at 3, well, it doesn't begin at 3, does it? Right? There, with every promise and every advertisement, um, well, very often they, they fall short. And sometimes, very often, if you haven't been too jaded made too cynical, what does that, when you find out that what you've been promised has deceived you, well, how do you react? Disappointment? Anger? Frustration? Well, you know, the, the, old, uh, the old preacher, John Howard Hinton, reminds us that nobody likes to be deceived. Everyone who's deceived once tries to avoid the repetition of such annoyance. That's, that's true for us, but it's also true for Jesus. As we turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11, and if you're using the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1032. Jesus, well, is a, is a victim of false advertisement. And he reacts, well, I'd say he reacts like most of us, but uh, we may be surprised that he, he reacts in a way that, that seems unbecoming of Jesus. And if we have a vision of Jesus, and thus a vision of spiritual maturity, that means to ne always be nice, to be passive, to be almost spineless. This vision of Jesus, this, this well, uh, moment of Jesus' life may surprise us. The anger of Jesus as such things. So if you would, we are in Mark chapter 11. We're going to be starting at verse 12. And Jesus had, the, the previous day, arrived in, the, in Jerusalem. He had, you know, the, 
what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. He, he'd come into the cheering of crowds. He goes up to the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. He goes about a couple, two miles to, to a little town called Bethany where he spends the night, and then this is where we pick up in our story in verse 12. So the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit, or uh, I believe it says, if it had anything. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for ways to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came and Jesus' disciples went out of the city and in the morning as they came along they saw the fig tree withered from the roots and Peter remembered and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. In the early 2000s, there was a, a trend, among, particularly among uh, Christians, that we wear these little bracelets with the, with the letters WWJD on it, right? It stands for, what would Jesus do? And it was meant to be a reminder to, in all circumstances, to try to act the way that Jesus would, would act, right? To have his mind, to have his heart, that when you, you know, encounter frustrating events or just the Whatever, whatever you meet during the day to try to respond in the way that we would see Jesus respond. Now, I am certain, 100% certain, that as you know, the, the marketing campaign for, for what would Jesus do uh, was set out, if they had a drop-down multiple-choice list of the ways that Jesus would respond or, and they would want you to respond, Jesus here in Mark 11 would not make the list. The cursing of fig trees, the overturning of tables, and you know, if we want to add in John's description, the, the forming of a whip and chasing people. Not exactly how, well, we're supposed to react or respond. Doesn't seem very Jesus-like. What's going on here? You know, as, as Jesus, he's going from Bethany to Jerusalem on this two-mile two hike, you know, not too long, especially in those days and age, and he gets hungry and he, he wants a snack, he goes over to a tree that, well, it's not the season for figs, but he was looking for something, and he's kind of upset. Is Jesus just hangry? Is it like one of those Snickers commercials? I don't know if they still run them. You know, you're not you when you're hungry. You just, he needs a bite to eat, but he doesn't get one, and so he just takes out all his godly power on this unsuspecting fig tree, and boom, withered from the roots. And he's still hungry as he reaches the temple, and, well, he just goes berserk on all, all that's happening in the temple. Now, I don't think that that's the vision of Jesus that we're, that we're receiving, right? What's happening here is, well, there is, you know, the, the gospel writers are, are wanting to say something very important, very key about, well, who Jesus is and what his ministry is and what his call on the people of God is. And as we dive into this, what we have to understand is, well, 
that the gospel writers are, they're connecting these two events. Not just because Jesus is angry or because Jesus does something that seems disruptive, but he's employing, Mark is employing a, a, a sandwiching technique, you know, where he starts a story, ends the story, and in between he places another story. And it's his way of saying, read these together. Read these together. They, they're saying something, you know, they help interpret one another. Right? The fig tree and his cursing of it, it is connected to, and it's, and it's helping explain what's going on in the temple cleansing. Both of them, at some level, are, are false advertisements. They're proclaiming something, but on closer inspection, they do not deliver. They fail to live up to what they say. Now, and perhaps what's one of the more bizarre or harder to understand phrases in Scripture is that, that idea that, you know, as Jesus goes up to the fig tree, he curses it, and it says, for it was not the season for figs. And you may be saying, well, what were you expecting, Jesus? Why would you go up to this tree when it's not the season for figs, expect to find something, and then get upset when it's not there? Well, as we said, promises, large promises, are the soul of every advertisement. The fig tree is a unique tree. Pliny the Elder tells us that the fig tree is the only tree whose, bud, whose fruit bud forms before its leaves. When Jesus sees a leafy tree, he sees a tree that should have fruit buds on it. But what does he find? Nothing but leaves. Yes, they weren't expecting a, you know, a full harvest at that point, a ripened fruit, a ripened fig, but there should have been fruit buds there should have been something that would show the expect, you know, that what was coming was a harvest, was something that was going to be nourishing. And these unripened fruit buds, you know, some people would chew on them, and uh, you know, they were a bland little little fruit that could be, you know, chewed upon. I don't think very, it wasn't exactly a delicacy, but it was something. And as Jesus sees this leafy tree, it's offering a promise. Something is coming. Something is here, but on closer examination, there's nothing but leaves. And similarly, the temple proclaims to the nations, something is here. God is here. Life is here. The Lord of heaven and earth is here. Come and worship. The Herod's temple was a magnificent building. Built of, of stone, you know, of two to three tons apiece, laid with gold all on the outside. All of it, you know, it, Josephus writes of how, you know, as you just approach the temple, as the sun just began to rise, it would reflect all that in, in this, you know, basic blazing, blinding fury of just a remarkable sight as people would approach. And at this particular time of year, as you approach the temple, as you ascend the hill, you'd perhaps be joined by a chorus of people on their way to, sell, you know, to worship God, singing the Psalms of Ascents. I lift my eyes to the morning. Where does my help come from? It comes 
My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And even as, you know, a mall is busy around December to hint at the, the activity and the importance of things to come, the hustle and bustle and the market of all that's going on around the temple is proclaiming that, well, there's something special here. There's something important here. What is it? God is here. But as Jesus approaches, he notices the same thing is wrong with the temple as the fig tree. Despite all the, the busyness, the hustle and bustle, the proclamation to the world that there's something here, there's some fruit here, there's something to be nourished, there's something to satisfy here, it's empty. It's not there. There's missing fruit. There's nothing to nourish. There's nothing to satisfy. And so what does Jesus teach them? Well, he he proclaims to them, well, that they they are falling away from the very mission of God. They missed their moment. Their identity as God's people has somehow, it has escaped them. And Jesus, like us, is upset. The disappointment of a false advertisement well, upsets him just as it does us. Now, as we uh, take, uh, if you would pull up a picture of, of the temple that we have, and to understand the, the temple, or and to understand what, what upsets Jesus, well, you have to understand how the, the temple is, is situated, right? At the, the big building that's in the center, that, the sanctuary, it's where the high priest and high priest alone could go. Um, and outside of that is the, the, the court of the priests. Only priests could go there. And under that first colonnade is, you know, it's the court of the men. And beyond that is the court of the women. And then beyond that is the court of the Gentiles. And, you know, the Gentiles could not move beyond that court. They couldn't go any further. They were, they were barred from approaching. And it's there, when Jesus looks around, that's where, well, that's where they're buying and selling of goods, they're changing money, they're selling doves, they're selling sheep, they're selling the, the things that would go to you know, their sacrifices. The whole court of the Gentiles is, is filled up. And so when Jesus be, you know, begins to clear out the temples, He's doing it because, you know, they are missing who they are called to be. The people of God are called to be a light to the nations. And they've heard the, they've heard this, the prophecies. They've heard what their, their identity is to be, that all the nations are going to stream to Zion. All the nations are going to come. They will kiss the sun. They will, they will find Yahweh, and they will, they will worship him. But, when, but as they are uh, polluting the court of the Gentiles, what they're proclaiming is, well, there's no room for you here. And so Jesus quotes, quotes to them from Isaiah, Isaiah 56, that, they are, that the temple is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And in Isaiah 56, well, what does Isaiah pro- proclaim to the people? That when God brings his people back from exile and he fulfills his redemption, what is he going to say? Starting at verse 6. And the foreigners, those who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, 
to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I'm going to bring to my holy mountain and to give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for the house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the sovereign Lord declares that he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will still gather others to them besides those already gathered. And as Jesus comes to the temple, he comes to the place that where the nations are to stream, what he finds is a people who have deliberately and consciously put up barricades for the nations to stream to it. And you may be saying, and you would be right to say, but the time of the Gentiles had not come. And you'd be right. Just as it was not the season for figs. The time had not come for the Gentiles to be ushered to the kingdom, for them to stream to Zion. No, 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 no. But just as there's no fruit buds for Jesus, we see in the people of God, there's, there's no hope. There's no there's no ability for them to fulfill the future promise for the nations to stream to Zion. They have barred the nations from worshiping him, from finding God, from meeting the place. They have made the house of God into a market, the place where the nations were to stream. And so Jesus is angry because the people of God, the people on whom he's placed his name, have forgotten who they are, who missed their call, who missed what they were supposed to be all along, who missed what God had called them to do and he prophesied that they would do. He placed upon him his name and they failed to act upon it. God's people are very often, well, tempted to, to march along with the drumbeat of the world, to forget who we are called to be and to do in this world. Oftentimes, we are our own false advertisements. God has placed his name on us. God has placed his presence in us. And yet, rather than being who we're called to be, well, we act in a way that, that betrays that. We put other things first. And our lives are filled with things that, are, that do not fulfill our calling as God's people. And we push out the very nature of our identity. A few years back, David Brooks, he's a New York Times columnist, he, he wrote this book. And um, in it, he, he distinguishes between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. You know, resume virtues are, you know, those things that we do that look good on a resume, right? Like, your activities, your skills, your competencies, your ability to get things done. Right? For, you know, for students, you know, being a part of clubs and sports and bands and, or getting your education and going to, to this school and getting this degree and getting this GPA and it all looks great on a resume. And adults is getting this certification, being able to manage this many people, having this much number in sales and it all looks great to be able to Tell future employees, hey, I'm somebody worth investing in. Now, eulogy virtues are the things that people talk to you, talk about you when you're in the casket. Your character, your integrity, 
your relationships to other people. If you're a Christian, your love and faithfulness to God. And the saddest funeral that I ever attended was one that was devoid of eulogy virtues being proclaimed. And it was just the person's resume virtues. The uncle of, of uh, uh, one of the students in my, my former church who, who he passed away and, uh, and all that was talked about, the entire thing was, you know, he was a pretty good musician. He wrote a musical that wasn't that good. And just, and the whole thing, and part of it was because the, the guy who was in the casket wanted to write his own funeral, but it wasn't aided by any of his family and friends. No one talked about he was a loving father, a caring husband, a man of integrity or of character. No, all they talked about was, you know, he, he could compose some pretty good music. And it was terribly, terribly sad. As I was thinking there, thinking, is this it? Is this all that you have to show for your life? And David Brooks goes on to remark and ask, he's like, you know, if, if people are, are asked, what's more important, your resume virtues or your eulogy virtues, everyone's going to say what? Your eulogy virtues. Who you are as a person. Your character, your godliness, all these things. The things that people are going to say when you're in the casket, those are the things that really matter. And yet... When asked, where do you spend your time and development, you take an objective look at how my life is operated, how it's being regulated, how I am deciding what to do with my time, where are we spending our development? For most of us, it's in our resume virtues, isn't it? A constant busyness to look good on paper that doesn't matter for when we're in the casket. We spend tons of time giving ourselves to the things that are going to build our resume. But when it's talking about developing and becoming the people that God has called us to be in this world, well, we're just too busy. There's a great, tremendous pressure on families for our kids to be in in activities every night of the week, to be part of a band and soccer and lacrosse and all these things. But in terms of raising kids to go out into the world to be the people whom God has called them to be, to go into a world that may be hostile to, to them being a Christian, where being a Christian could be, have them labeled as a bigot, as dumb. And very often we, we do nothing to send them out into this world to fulfill God's mission to reach the nations and proclaim Christ's excellencies to the world. We spend our time and our resources making sure that they can proclaim their competencies to an employer. And in so doing, we are raising leafy, fruitless fig trees. Adults who spend all their, their time looking to sacrifice the mission of God and God's call on your life in order to hit the next rung on the corporate ladder. 
Or perhaps retirees who say, you know, I've done my part. My job now is just to relax. That the call of God upon his people is to demonstrate the excellencies of Christ to the world, to proclaim him in all circumstances, to reveal him to the world, to to proclaim his welcome to the nations to come. But so often we get distracted. We are busy, terribly busy, but we're unproductive. We have, you know, big leaves and lots of energy and commotion that proclaim that there's something here. But as the nations come near, just as Christ comes near, he does not find the fruit that God has called us to be, the fruit that God has demanded us to have. And God, well, God doesn't enjoy false advertisements, nor do the nations. You know, a few weeks ago, I, when we talking about the rich young ruler, and we had this, this very daunting challenge, many of you heard it and responded in faith and praised God for that. The challenge to, to have an open hand with our checkbook and our bank account. And today we have just as daunting of a, of a, a challenge, to have an open hand with our calendar with our schedule. That there's not a minute of your day that God has not said, that is mine. And it's not that I am not calling the the church to say, hey, it's now time just to get your act together and go out and be better people. But the call of the church is to say, in my life and in my schedule, am I making room for God to transform me, to and provide the fruit that he requires? Or am I filling my life with things that are pursuing the resume virtues rather than these eulogy virtues? Am I hardening my, my, my life and my schedule and my heart to receive the life of God to flow through me, that the world can see and hear his welcome through me? And in my life, What am I willing to sacrifice for? There was a family that I knew uh, a while back when I, when I was doing work as a youth pastor, and the, the mother had gotten in an accident and was, um, it was you know, wheelchair-bound. And very often I would end up giving the, the son and his friends you know, rides to and from church and youth group events to you know, allow them to come. And you know, I got to know him pretty well. And I, when I would stop by and see his, his mother for a little while, she'd always just explain, like, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, I, I just I can't get to church in the morning. I can't bring my son there. It's just, it's just too hard. Yeah, I understand. You know, you have, you have things that are a little bit more difficult than most. I, I understand. But as, as I was driving her son around on multiple occasions, it's like every other week they would have time to go up to Virginia, which is over an hour away, to go shopping in the mall all day. There's no problem getting him to his 6 a.m. basketball practices. There's no problem, you know, doing all the other things that are part of his life, but the things of God, there's never any time for. It's never worth sacrificing for. 
is never worth a rearranging the schedule for. Very often our lives look the same, don't they? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not proclaiming to you that all activities are bad or that nothing can ever, you have to be at every church event or anything. Like this. But if, I take a real, if we took a really good look at our lives and decided, you know, what are the things that I am willing to rearrange my schedule for, rearrange our, our home life for, rearrange our, the ways that we operate for, are they the things that are building the eulogy virtues of my life and, that of, and those of our children, or are they the things that are, are building our resume virtues? Things that are going to look good on paper. The things that will help us get to the next level, into the right college, get the next promotion. And so this, this morning, the Lord is speaking to you and he's calling you saying, you know, I, I want to rearrange and disrupt the flow of your life that you would hold open, that we would hold open and empty, or have an open hand with what the Lord says. Say, if you want to get rid of this thing, it means a lot, I care about it a lot, but Lord, if you want to take this out because you want to put in something better, I give you access. If you want to take out this thing that's precious to me, this thing that I love, because you want to put in something that's even better, that builds up me and builds up my family in ways that matters for eternity, Lord, you have access. We want to be a people that proclaims the excellencies of Christ to the nations in all things. And to do so, it requires that, that we hold with an open hand the ability of God to come in and to change and to transform and to deliver us. Are you willing to make that sacrifice? Are you willing to have an open hand with our, with our calendar and our schedule books? I know you are. Let's pray. Kind Father, this morning, I know it's a, in some ways a daunting task and a hard call, but Lord, it is, it is one that you have called us to do to give you lordship and ownership of all of our lives that you can come and change and transform us. We remember your words, Jesus, when you said that you are the vine and we are the branches and that those who remain in you will bear much fruit. That what we cannot do in the flesh and in our willpower and in our desires, Lord, that you do as you transform your people. So Lord, reveal the ways that you're calling us to transform our lives to give you access, that we would be your people and you would be our God. We pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.